This evening, we're actually going to talk about dating methods, and this is probably the one that most people are looking forward to because you want to know what are you, what, how, what are you supposed to do? What is the right way when it comes to pursuing someone in dating or courtship or marriage? And I do want to say that this is a really a culmination of all the things that we've learned. This isn't just something that uh, you should just do without listening to the other 14 or so messages. And this design is really a way to capstone everything. Um, you'll see why we structured this way, because if you just focus on this first one, then, or this, this message tonight, then you'll, then you'll miss all the biblical principles that is needed in order to think biblically. Um, so again, this is a huge topic, and I do want to try my best to answer this as biblically as possible to give you some tools to help you think through things. But before we start, let's open a time in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your word, and Lord, help us be discerning and to think clearly about everything uh, pertaining to life. And Lord, we know that your scripture tells us and will give us everything that we need to know about how we can live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, guard our minds, allow us to be attentive this evening, uh, give us the ability to, to just follow you and to love you more each and every single day. Thank you for the time that we have today, your son's precious name, amen. Now we're going to start with story time, and this message in a lot of ways is, I'm going to try my best to be pra uh, practical and theological at the same time, and it's a balancing act for all preachers. But I do want to start by just illustrating with just different stories in terms of people in my life that have impacted me when I think about dating. And this, a lot of it is because each and every single one of these are different. One of my mentors when I was in college, he shared with me how when, he, you know, when I was in college, I was asking, how did you meet your wife? He said, oh, we did online dating. Now, it may not seem much to you, but at the time, online dating was you know, it was kind of like strange to people. People thought, oh, are you socially awkward or something? The only online, uh, the only people that are desperate will use online dating. And this was my mentor. So I was like, were you desperate? What was going on? Why did you use this? And he shared that this website in particular was very niche. It was a particular ethnicity and a particular theological bent. So it was like a small sect of a smaller sect. And I was like, wow, I did not even know such a website exists. So it was probably him his future wife, and like seven other people on this dating website. But he told me about this. He said that, oh, I didn't, I said, oh, cool, so tell me, what did you do? And he said that when he was pursuing this, his, his, you know, whoever it was, or his wife, through the website, he, didn't, he intentionally did not put his profile picture. And he said that, oh, yeah, there was this girl that messaged me, and she didn't have a profile picture. And I was like, dude, this could be a total scam, right? This is like, how is this going to work? How do you know that this is not a bot that's just like trolling you? And he said like, oh, yeah, you know, we were just messaging at first, and everything that she said was what I believed in. We were both reformed. We both went to different churches, and they were in different states. And again, I was like, wow, that's so much faith because you, you don't even see the person. There's no, there's no picture to this profile. And then eventually they exchange numbers, and even then I'm like, dude, that could be someone just faking it, trying to harvest your organs or something. How do you know if this is truly a person? And, you know, they, they're talking for months and months, and eventually they said, hey, let's, let's finally meet. After several months, they're finally going to meet in person. They don't even know what they, they look like. They just said, hey, we're going to meet at this spot in this particular state, in this city. And I'm like, okay, you better, uh, it's just like, I'm thinking this is, 
this is like a plot for some horror movie. Like, you're going to go to some random state, her state, that she was in, I think it was Chicago. Again, Chicago. So I was like, ooh, okay, that's dangerous. <laughs> he goes, and he said, okay, I'm going to dress, I'm going to wear this. And she's like, okay, I'm going to wear this certain thing. So they went in the crowd, and then they went to this, I think it was a coffee shop, and they finally saw each other for the very first time after months of just talking over the internet and, you know, over the phone. And, and you know, eventually they, they, they're drawn to each other, and they got married a few months after that. And I remember asking the wife, I was like, what did you see in him? I mean, like, you ha- it was all by faith. You did not even know what this person looked like. You didn't know if this person was lying to you. How did you know that this person was legit? And she said, yeah, I didn't. I, I just, it was just based on conversation. In the end, I had to trust in the Lord. I said, then what drew you to him? And she admitted, like, look, I was really interested in a guy with very, with a lot of hair and no facial hair. And this, you know, my discipler was bald and has a goatee. And then he had certain preferences, too, that didn't match up. But because they just saw each other in, in, you know, in the context of just conversation, talking about God, eventually he did visit her church and you know, get to know her pastor and everything else. And then it was true. Like, everything that she said on, the, on this profile was exactly who she is in real life. They eventually got married, and now they're in Chicago, back, back, back over there. I have another friend. Story number two. I have two friends when I was in college, and um, both of them, uh, one of them worked, at, both of them worked at the church, actually. And uh, one day, it's independent. It was just around the same time. It was actually around, around this time, around Thanksgiving time. I was talking separately in two different conversations with the Bible study. It's kind of like this after night, after one of the evening uh, fellowship groups. I asked one of them, and I was like, hey, uh, what are you going to do over Thanksgiving? And he said, oh, uh, my dad faxed me a picture of this girl, and I'm going to go and marry this girl. And I was thrown off. I was like, who still uses a fax machine? I was just like amazed by this technology. You know, apparently they're using the church's fax machine. So it was like the dad was sending pictures of these ladies. It was like, oh, do you want to marry this person? And then with this guy, this is the seminary student, was like, oh, totally, yeah, let's go for it. And then my other friend did exactly the same thing. We had a small group, and I asked them, what were you going to do over the holidays? Like, I'm going to go get married. He's like, for real? And he's like, oh, yeah. Uh, I got, my dad faxed me a photo, too. He's like, dude, what is wrong with you people? Why are you faxing <laughs> pictures of people at the church, you know, it's like, I'm just imagining secretary just looking at the coffee machine, these, like, faxes of these ladies' pictures of what is going on here. It's like, did our church become, like, a dating service? Both of them um, only, uh, during the holidays, went back home, proposed, and then when they came back, like, oh, yeah, I'm getting married. I'm leaving L.A. now. I'm going to get married in a few weeks. And it threw me off. I was like, you just met this person from a fax machine from your dad. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And they did. They left. One of them didn't even finish seminary. He's like, I'm out of here. The other person who was younger than I was, uh, I was 20 at the time. He was 19, left, got married. And one of them's in Nebraska. The other is in Missouri. Now they both, both of them thriving in their marriages and have kids. Third, story number three. Uh, I think Roger made a reference to this once. We both have a classmate in seminary. And he told us that he was a missionary. He was part of a charismatic group at the time. And he was in India, and this, this Indian pastor was like, hey, do you want to marry my daughter next week? And he's like, sure. <laughs> he's never seen her before, and on the, he only met her and saw her on the day of the wedding. And that time they both had, they, they would both admit that they were, that was probably a very unwise decision, but God providentially placed them together, and it worked out. They Eventually, you know, changed their theological um, leanings. They kind of turned away from the charismatic movement. But now they are um, 
I think he's pastoring somewhere. Uh, he was still in seminary when, when Raj and I both left. Um, but it worked out. It was an arranged marriage, and they, were, they didn't meet until the, the day, they met, until the, the wedding day. The last story will be your, your, yours truly. It will be my story between you know, how, how, I, how Kelly and I started dating. So I, I kind of alluded to throughout this dating series about how I had a mentor that told me, hey, don't be that creeper seminary student that just arrives and starts asking people out, just wait three months, because apparently three months is a huge difference from being a creeper. That's like, that's like a semester or a quarter for UCLA students. So I did, and then there was that January. I remember praying and asking the Lord, just, just give me the opportunity. I, I don't care if she says yes or no. I just need a definitive yes or no. I just need the opportunity to ask her. So there was the first week we had a small group leader meeting, and it was actually at the apartment that Kelly lived at the time. So it was all of us together, and uh, you know, the shepherd was trying to give us some directions and goals for the coming semester. And I was like, okay, my only goal right now is to ask her out. So every, you know, eventually the whole meeting ended, and everyone left. In the end, it was just it was Kelly, this other girl, uh, my shepherd, and myself. And my shepherd was a terrible wingman. Like, he knew that I was going to do this, and he did nothing. He just stood there, and I was like, hey, I gave him this look, like, okay, get that other girl out of here, because I need to do my thing. He looked at me and was thinking, why aren't you asking out right now? And it's like, I'm not going to ask. And it was like, this was like clearly a miscommunication. And there was this awkward moment where I was just, where all four of us just standing there, like, looking at each other. And then Kelly eventually was like, since she lived there, so I'm just going to eat breakfast. So she just walks away, grabs him, and starts eating in front of us. And I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I can't do this. And he's looking at like, why aren't you doing this? And it's like, and then we left, and we walked down the hallway. He's like, did you ask her? I was like, no, man, I didn't ask her. You did not do your job in getting this girl out. It like, turns out she lived there. That's why she didn't leave. She was the other roommate. And then I was like, okay, I lost that chance. And I was like, I'll ask on a Sunday. And, then I, and that Sunday, I couldn't find her. And I was like, okay, I'm going to ask her on Friday. Friday night, that's Grace on campus. I'm doing this. And that Friday happened to be the, you know, every January, there's like Steve Lawson will go in and preach to the students. And the shepherd was like, hey, do you want to hang out with Steve Lawson for an evening? I was like, oh, that's cool. I get to ride with one of the best preachers on the planet. And he was four or five traffic, so I, basically I'll be with him for five years. It'll be a great time learning from him. I was like, but I do also want to ask her, but okay, maybe I'll, I'll, we'll see what happens. So, you know, I, you know we, I decided to choose the Lawson option. So we went, and we drove down to GOC together, and yes, there was traffic. We were going to Bible study, and we were just talking with Lawson and everything. And he said, oh, yeah, you're going to be his escort. You're going to bring him to the Bible study. You're going to bring him back to Grace Church. And there was a little part of me that got a little bitter throughout the night. I was like, dude, this guy's a grown man. He's been here more than once. Why does he need me to guide them to the Bible study? I should just leave him and abandon him and then, you know, go and go ask her out. But it turns out I couldn't because I had to, you know, deflect all the students that are just kind of like, you know, fanboy over him. It's like, oh, he has to go now, tie a stiff arm. And then I lost my opportunity. And weeks, uh, like two or three weeks went by, and then every Friday I couldn't find her. There was some, some sort of event. Sunday I couldn't find her. She was out doing something. I had to go do something. And night church I couldn't find her. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to message her on Facebook. And I did. I asked her out on Facebook. And I asked her, like, hey, not like, not like writing on the wall, like, hey, were you interested? It's not a public thing. It was a direct message, private message thing. I just asked her, like, hey, I'm, I'm interested in you. I've been, I just want to get to know you some more. Would you be interested to grab some coffee sometime? And she's like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's do it. It was a little bit more complicated because she, she asked me for clarifying. She asked some clarifying questions. Why do you want to meet? And I was like, am I in trouble? I was like, no, no, you're not. I just I want to get to know you more. And that's how, we, that's how Kelly and I started dating, really. We, we had one date and the next week we became an official couple. 
Now, I, I told all of these stories with this, with this intent, and it's that none of them are alike. And there's a lot, they're all different methods. All of these methods are different. Each of these scenarios are just essentially believers acting in faith and marrying other believers. Not one of them are identical mechanically. And all dating and marriage should, should, should be like a snowflake. You know, no two dating couples should look alike because every couple is different. Everyone's lives are different. They're in different life stages. They're in different circumstances. And also, none of these things are inherently anti-Bible or anti-biblical or, either, or even Bible-affirming. So none of them are things like, okay, the Bible says it has to be this one particular method, or the Bible saying, no, you cannot do this particular way. The Bible doesn't say you cannot do online dating. The Bible doesn't say you need to pray for a few months or listen to your disciple for four months before you ask them. None of that. It's silent about it. And is that okay? Is that okay for us? Because we know, and First Peter tells us, that Scripture has everything that we need pertaining to a life of godliness. So when it comes to this particular topic, how can we honor the Lord? What are the principles that we can live by so that we can truly glorify the Lord in this? I have five questions for us this evening, just for us to think about this. Um, before I get to the last point, which is really the last point is what is the right way? But the first question I want us to kind of think through is why is it so difficult? Why is this topic so controversial? Why is it so divisive in the context of the church? So that's the first question. Why is it so difficult? And it's difficult, I think one reason, is because Christians want to do their best to do what is both biblically, uh, applying biblical principles, and at the same time doing something that's culturally acceptable. Uh, there is a balance and tension between the two. You, you look at Scripture, you find all these biblical principles, you want to apply it biblically, but at the same time you understand that you're in a context where it's different from the rest of the world. And you want to try to find that balance. There's a, and that's a, I think that's a good tension to have in your mind, to try to balance those two. We have to admit that it's hard to apply something that the Bible doesn't speak directly on. So the difficulty on, the, on one hand is that how do we draw from the biblical principles and apply it to our lives? And it's difficult and nuanced to find every passage of Scripture and then think about how does this look practically in my life? On the other hand, we also want to do things that is culturally acceptable. Whether you believe it or not, you're doing dating in a lot of ways in our context. It's, it's something that is culturally acceptable. I mentioned online dating. Maybe like 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, it was considered taboo. It was like a weird thing. But now it's totally fine. Why? Because the culture has changed. There's a little acceptance. Even back then, there were pastors and Christians that would try to speak against it. Now there are Christians that, are, that will give biblical reasoning for it. You know, and again, these are just application of biblical principle, and it's not right or wrong. It's just the way that people are. Human nature, that's just the reality of human, human beings. Human beings in different times will create different cultures. And what the church tends to do, if you're perfectly honest, is that we like to redeem the things that are from the culture. Right? Like we, if we say, well, we're not going to take anything from the culture. Obviously, that's not true because the way that you dress, the way that all of us dress are influenced by the culture. We just try to take biblical principles and redeem it. So we you know, refer to the modesty thing. We, we want to dress in a way that doesn't make, draw attention to ourselves. And we want to uh, dress in a way that's honoring to the Lord. But yet we still wear clothes that are from the world, right? Like the world makes things. That's fine. These things are fine. But when it comes to the context of dating, we try to do the same thing. We try to adopt something that is familiar to us, by, but by injecting biblical principles so that we can redeem it, so that we can do things that is acceptable culturally, but at the same time, not dishonoring to the Lord. 
Now, this does take time to figure out. Most of us would agree that it is a struggle between cultural norms that is acceptable and then applying those biblical principles accurately. Now, understand that when I say culture, there's also a subculture, which is the church culture. Because even in the context of church, there's different churches that hold to different views and things that are acceptable or, or you know, ch you know cult church culture that accepts, that's acceptable or not. We don't want to date like the world, but we aren't willing to abandon it completely. We want to date or court or whatever method, or you try to find a spouse, whatever works for you, without having to violate scripture. Again, it's a good and a noble thing to try to figure that out. To look at things that are like, it's, it's kind of neutral, but you want to still walk in the narrow path, having biblical principles that guide you, to guard you from sin, that's a good thing to have. Now, a second reason why this is so difficult is because if we were to be honest, we prefer what is most comfortable. This is where the cultural context plays in. Most of us will, won't, we don't want to deviate too far from, the, from how the culture thinks because, you know, it's just weird, right? If you think that oh, I'm only going to do something that's so countercultural, that's the only way to go, because we'll be light, salt and light in the world, we'll be different, then, you know, there's no difference between you and what an Amish person would do, right? Like, they, they, they live and dress different. They're actually really radical, and they actually try to live differently. They're, like, they're still using horses and stuff. You don't ride a horse. You drive cars with horsepower, but that's different, right? Like, you're not, you, there's a certain amount of cultural things from the world that we're willing to adopt, there has been past and present debates over dating methods that are often at the heart of the argument. It seems that they just want to do what's best for them and, and what's honoring to the Lord. Again, people, some people using the dating, online dating, for example, some people feel it was against it for a while because there's no accountability. You know, you don't have elders and, and deacons that oversight your life. There, you have no spiritual member. How do you know if this person truly is saved? How do you know if, if, um, if this person is even real? Kind of like my argument before with my mentor. But later on, eventually people say that online dating is fine because it protects unity of church. You know, if I, if I date people outside the church and it doesn't work, it's not going to affect the church I serve at currently. And then, um, you know, there's, you want to preserve unity, you want to preserve friendships, and, you know, if, it's, if it doesn't work out, you guys can still rel function relatively normal in your respective church. And, you know, whatever method you're against, there is always going to be someone else that has a reason for it. Whatever view or dating method you think you have in your mind, there's going to be the counter-argument that's for that particular method. Again, why is that? It's because people tend to go for the, the method that is most comfortable for them. And dating or courtship or whatever it is, is uncomfortable, and people would do their best to create a system to make it, to make it as least uncomfortable as possible. And if you were to be honest, the reason why we don't want this is because we don't want to get hurt. Right? That's why people want to focus on a structure or some sort of metric or model. It's because it's easy. You can, say, you can blame the thing if it doesn't work out. Right? You can say, oh, the reason why we broke up, the reason why this doesn't work, the reason why I'm single is because the method is wrong. You, you're guarding yourself. You want to try to protect yourself from pain. Again, think of every dating method. There's a hint of that. Whatever it may be, online or your parents um, you know, arranging your marriage, if you're, if you're it's basically your comfort zone. You prefer that because, you know, that's comfortable. You don't want to get hurt. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you were to be honest, why do we have, why is it so difficult? Because we don't want to get hurt, so we try to find the, the, the path of least pain. The reason why it's so difficult is because we choose a particular dating method with the highest chance of success. You want to choose, generally, people date with a purpose. 
They want to date something with, that guarantees a, 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 you know, a best outcome. If you were to choose between dating method number one that gives a 95% chance of you finding a spouse versus dating method number two that gives you 5% chance, most of you will choose the 95% because this is more success, more chances of success. You don't want to keep messing around or, or getting dumped or dumping someone or you know, getting hurt. You don't want to waste your time. So you choose the method that you think will give the highest chance of success. And again, that, there's nothing wrong with that thinking. I mean, in my life, I have been evangelized by people who view, who view that their view is the right way to protect you or the other person. That's fine. I, I get where they're coming from, but it's a preferred method, not necessarily a command from Scripture. And if you're wondering if I am taking shots at any particular views, yes, I am. I'm taking shots at every single view. I am equal hater of all views, even my own. I will t- if I look at back in my life and see how I did my dating thing with Kelly, I could make fun of it. I could see how, this, how, how unwise and dumb you were in these areas. Yeah, that's normal. I am taking shots at every single one. So I'm not, think- I'm not isolating one. I'm taking shots at all of them. Um, I'm an equal opportunist equal in terms of making fun of them and poking shots at them, including my own. Okay. So that's the first question. Why is it so difficult? Because of those three things I've mentioned. Second question, how do I know if my view or any dating view is not the only way? How do I know that if if, is my view, my preferred dating method, how do I know that that is not the only way? Can this method, so here's where I would, again, two sub-points here. First question, I call it the, the time principle or the transferable principle. So the question is this, can this method be transferred to any other time, any other culture, any other space outside of my own? So if you view something, is your view something that everyone throughout history have done? If you believe that this one view that you have is the view, that this the definitive way that God has said, thus saith the Lord, that would mean that it's something that every culture, every believer from all time must hold as well. If you believe that, that, is the, this is so, this, this, that this view is transcendent of all time and space, uh, then the problem means you haven't read the Bible enough. If you haven't noticed the Bible, the, that the Lord has brought many people to marriage outside of the thing that you think. So how did they do it in the biblical times? Well, I would argue just looking at the totality of Scripture, it would seem that it's changed and morphed. Whatever your view is right now, it would be considered strange and awkward to the people in the biblical times. Right? Like, let's look at one example, Genesis chapter 2. We know this particular verse or section or portion of Scripture. Adam was alone. He looked at all the animals, and he realized, hey, wait a minute. There is none for me. There's no one that's meant for me. So then God puts him in a slumber and takes a rib out and makes Eve. That's one way you can find this about you. Ask the Lord, put me in a deep slumber, and then make her out of my ribs. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen, but that's the first marriage. That's how it all began, that God created a wife for him. I wonder if, there's, if somewhere down the line, we eventually people will do cloning. It's like, can you clone a wife for me? I guess that might be the closest to that, but we don't have that type of technology. So that's out of the picture. You can't do that. Or maybe Exodus chapter 2. 
Uh, Exodus chapter 2, this is, again, familiar to us. Moses is after all the Jewish boys are killed. Moses at this point has grown up. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it happened in those days that Moses had grown up, and he went out of his brothers and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. And then you know the story. He, he, he kills one of the Egyptians and buries the body in the sand, and then the next day he finds another two Jewish people are fighting against each other. And he gets caught. One of them said, hey, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me too? And he leaves. And Moses flees. And in verse, uh, verse 16, now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs to give water to their father's flock to drink. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses rose up and saved them and gave water to their flock to drink. Then they came, these seven daughters came to Riol, their father, and he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian he delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. He actually drew, even drew the water for us and gave water to the flock to drink. And he said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left this man behind? Call him so that he may eat bread. And Moses was willing to settle down with the man. And he gave his daughter Zephora to Moses. So this is like basically rescue someone. You know, if, if you're, if, if imagine if I did that to someone, if someone went to date my daughter, okay, I'm going to leave you in West Oakland, save somebody, and then you can marry my daughter. You know, that's like, that's, that would be the trying to apply Exodus chapter 2 in the modern context. Or you could do Deuteronomy chapter 21, which is a, a passage on war and what happens after you win a war and there's some lady that, that you know, from the enemy, uh, there's a girl on the, on the other side that you like, well, it says here in, Exodus, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you go in a battle against your enemies and Yahweh your God gives them over into your hands and you take them away captive and see among the captives a beautiful woman and set your affections on her and will take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and weep for her father and mother a full month. And after you may go into her and, and be her husband and she shall be your wife. So war. You win a war and then, and then find someone from the opponent, find one of your enemies and then marry with their beautiful daughters. That's one way to do it. But is it really? And we know when we're going through the book of Judges, I said, don't do the Benjamin thing. Like, you know, go to a, a party and then just take some of the girls. It's like modern day equivalent would be like if you went to like a BTS concert, you see all those girls. Like, okay, I'm going to just kidnap one of them. No one will know. And I will make them my wife. That's like the Judges 21. That's, again, again, I told you, this is not a go into like likewise. I'm just saying that there are ways in which people do things differently. Or you can prescribe to the Solomon style of marriage. Just marry everyone. Just click all the above. That's what Solomon did. Now, if you think that there's one method of dating and you want to be dogmatic about it, then you should think that the best way would be however the biblical characters did it. Right? Like the Bible characters lived in time. They had a way of doing things, and we should follow what they, they, they did in the past, whether it's Old Testament saints or New Testament. Now, the question is, what did they do? Right? That's the, I have spent a good a lot of time this week figuring that out. Like, what did they do back then? It was a very edifying experience for me to figure out that, okay, yeah, that's how they did it. I'm glad I don't have to do it, but here's what they did. Back then, it is normal for the man's wife, so the, 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 the husband, it is normal for the elders or the parents to choose a spouse for them. So usually it's the parents, but if you, know, you don't have parents, and it's like the elders of, that, of the tribe choose it for you. 
And love has nothing to do with it. They just like, hey, I want, I think, I want my son to marry your daughter. You want to do it? Cool. Uh, let's work. Let's let's do this. I mean, this is what Abraham did with Isaac. He found a daughter for Isaac. And after they're chosen, there's this period called the betrothal period, and that's familiar to it's in our mind. It's like the engagement, and what happens there. Usually, there's the 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 husband or the de- the, the man's dad would ex- would give gifts to the his future brother-in-law, I guess. Uh, the bridegroom or his family will give a gift to the family of the bride, and there's usually a document that's signed as legally binding and is witnessed by other people. Now, even though they're not married, they're still engaged. This is a betrothal period. So any unfaithfulness will be considered adultery and in some cases even punishable by death. And when this, is, this, is what, this was Mary and Joseph's dilemma, right? When, when Mary was found to be pregnant, Joseph was struggling because he knew the implications. If she is an adulterer, then by Jewish law, she should be killed because she, she broke this, this, this contract. He wanted to find a, a, a way to put away secretly, and the only way was that an angel had to intervene to ensure him that, no, she is not, um, she did not commit adultery, that this is all part of God's divine plan. Which, again, if you think about what, what it's like, the Bible doesn't say, just think about it. After that, they got married. So they went through this whole wedding process afterwards with a child. So there was already people that probably thought negatively about Jesus and Joseph and Mary. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 41, Jesus has this debate with the Pharisees. And, you know, Jesus was telling them that these, that, you know, your fathers, are, they're trying to debate, who, you know, which line are they from. The Pharisees, they said, oh, we're from Abraham. We are of the chosen race. Yet the Pharisees said this about Jesus, that they said that we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. So this implies that these Jewish people try to take shots at Jesus, saying that, you look, you are a child of immorality. So this is known throughout the, the time. Now, again, aside from that, usually after a betrothal period, the father of the groom will build a place in his home for, the, for his future daughter-in-law and for his son, uh, which can take up to a year, and this time uh, is decided by the groom. So if the groom had enough money and resources, he could maybe build it in two months, and then the, uh, they could get married in two months. Or if it's like a year, then it'll take a year. And again, usually the father of the groom will prepare the part of the house for the arrival of the bride. Again, this is contrary to what we think in terms of how a family should be. We think leave and cleave. So leave your own house, leave your parents' house, and find your own place. That's usually how we apply that part, apply that scripture. But that's not how it was back then. They build a place for the family. So it's kind of like you're expanding out. So again, if you want, if you want to follow the closest thing to biblical times and you try to find this correlation between back then and now, then what you need to do, ladies, is to pray and hope that you that that there's a, a guy that you like ha- who has a rich dad that's willing to build a place for you. So basically, you don't, need, you don't even need to worry about your future husband's readiness. You just make sure that his dad is wealthy and ready enough to you know, take you in. Again, usually this takes about one year or so to complete, and after that, the groom will return and fetch the bride. So usually what happens is that the bride, if they're, especially if they're different parts, they live in different places, like you know, different parts, cities, the bride has no idea when the groom is going to get there. When the groom is ready, when the, when the room is fixed and everything's good, the groom will go and, and get his bride. And usually what happens when they're, when they're ready, there's, this, tr- there's a trumpet call or a shout to let the lady know, hey, your, your groom is coming to get you. You can see now and understand why in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus talks about the, 
about being ready with the, the, you know, the ten virgins, right? Those who were not ready, uh, that was actually a cultural thing. Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13, is a parable of ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. For five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with them, with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But the, at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. So again, Jesus used what they did normally as a way to illustrate being ready for Christ's return. So back then, at the time, the bride would wait. They would wait, and they don't know how long it was going to be. And when it was time, then the husband will take their, you know, I guess their fiancé will take them. So what follows after this will be essentially... The, the wedding, right? This is something we feel there's usually a large party that lasts for an entire week. Now, the question is this. If, you, if this is what they were going through in the past, if this is what they did back then, why don't we do this? How come we don't do that? How come our parents don't help um, you know, build a place for my future wife and set up this party? Why don't we do this? And then, you know, I could wait and then, and then you know, have someone go ahead of me and trumpet, hey, Ray's coming to get you, Kelly. You know, why isn't that? Why isn't that a norm? Why don't we do this anymore? Well, the answer is because the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to do this. This is just what was going on culturally back then. It doesn't, give us a, it doesn't give us a command to follow this exactly, and the Bible doesn't say that failure to do so is sin. The Bible only shows us how different people in different eras find a spouse. And their dating and marriage ritual isn't transferable to us present day. And that also means that our present day way of, of, of courtship or whatever is only contextual. Or they maybe think of it the other way. Chances are your dating view will look nothing like, if you were to go back in time and try to make your argument or your case, people will look at you like you're weird. Like, who does that? Who goes and asks someone out? That's so weird. Like, where are your parents? You know, where are your elders? That's how they would think. And if your dating view doesn't trans- transcend time, space, or culture, it probably means either a cultural preference or a personal preference. This is why it takes wisdom and you know, try to understand uh, just the cultural setting rather than finding some direct command from Scripture to, to prescribe one way of dating or the other. So again, is this method... Oh, that's the first one. That's a whole huge point, the transferable principle. How do I know if my view is not the only way? First one is transferable. Second one is this. I call it the church discipline principle. Is this method of dating... If, they don't, if people fail to do or not do it, is this something that the church can church discipline someone for? Church discipline is designed for those who choose to live contrary to Scripture, who reject God's Word. If you view that your dating view is, is from God's Word and saying, like, okay, it has to be this view, that means that if they don't do this, that they are worthy to be church disciplined because they're violating Scripture. Now, imagine we have a church discipline, church discipline case. Usually what happens is, okay, this person is unrepentant, he's committing adultery, or this person is stealing from the church, or, or this person is divisive, or he's, or, he's causing, or, he's causing, or he's teaching a false gospel, right? Those things make sense, because the Bible tells you that those things are sin. But we can't church discipline someone if they choose to apply biblical principles differently. Again, this applies to every area of your life. One family might think homeschooling is great, and another might think, Homeschooling is not. The church and the elders here are not going to church discipline. Oh, you, oh, you, did, you sent your kids to public school or private school. 
No, why? It's because the application of Scripture is different. We don't, we don't church discipline people on things that are just their own preference. One might think it's best for them, another might be another. Elders can't church discipline them for wanting to apply God's word differently. Why is that? Because the Bible doesn't give explicit commands that certain things are right or wrong. So that is why when the scripture is silent, we should be gracious to those that hold to a different view. You might think that your view is the right way, and that's fine for you. That's fine. Just don't impose it onto other people. Don't, think, don't look down on other people for holding a different view. Because if you think that your view is the only right way, that means that the church should be able to church discipline out for not obeying, for, for not obeying God's word. God's word is not just for you and your culture and your time. It's for believers and all times. And I think that's why the Bible is so amazing. It's so amazingly written because it gives us principles that transcends culture, time, and space. And you think that your view is the right view and that this is what God commands then that means we should be willing to church discipline someone for not following that particular command. Now, again, that would sound insane. Imagine if we did that on, an elder, on, a, on a Sunday morning. Like, so-and-so is getting church discipline because he asked someone else out online. Oh, what a heathen. Now, just to warn you, this actually does happen in certain churches. Like, I've known churches that church discipline because their dating method is this, that, every, that the elders of the church has to decide whether or not you, who, you get, who you marry. Like, you're sitting next to someone of the opposite gender. Who gave you the right to do that, you adulterer? You need to sit on the other side of the room. There are churches that actually do things like that where they micromanage your life. And they do church discipline people out of it. And they often just bend scriptures. And they will take these passages and they'll bend it so that they can essentially control people. Again, that's unbiblical. That's adding to scripture. And that's very dangerous. We'll more on that little, in a little bit. So for first question, why is it so difficult? Second question, how do I know my view is not the only way? And again, those, those two principles mean transferable uh, principle or the church discipline principle. Third, what are the essential? Now, I've said this. This is going to be my shortest point. I've said this. What are the essential things that you need in the context of dating? First is saved. Second is opposite gender. Third is not married. Those are the main three things. And it's a bonus if that other person likes you. Because even in the context of the Old Testament, when they married people, they were committed to each other, even though they may not find that person attractive. They loved them because that, that's just the way that it was. It wasn't as romantic as we think. So that's why it's a bonus. The Bible doesn't say, like, oh, yeah, you have to like them or to marry them. In fact, the Bible tells, at least tells wives to learn to love their husband, which implies that husbands are very hard to love. Some guys like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I know that's me, too. So that's it. What are the essentials? Saved, opposite gender, not married, and bonus if they like you. That's the third question. Fourth, what do I need to do? What must I do? So again, if you're just looking, I'm looking, this is like a 30,000 view kind of answer. What do I need to do? There's two principles, generally. Okay, the first is that there has to be some sort of initiation. Whatever dating method that you prefer, there has to be at some point where you have to initiate. Whether it's like, if you're doing online dating, okay, you, you're going to click the send message, right? You're going to have to click something. You have to initiate something. However small or big, you have to initiate this. Whether it be dating or courtship or whatever it is, you can't be silent about it. You have to take some sort of action. You must be willing to initiate the relationship. Now, realistically, in our context, the church context, ladies will not want to ask guys out. 
All right, I mean, I said a few messages ago, hey, ladies, if you want, go for it. The Bible doesn't say you can't do it, go for it. Now, now I, know that's, I know that this audience, and generally speaking, Christians, ladies are not comfortable with that. Fine, that's totally fine. I don't want you to violate, violate, violate your conscience. So that means that for you men, you do need to take initiative. Whatever it looks like in the context of your life, you can't just wait around. That's why Proverbs tells us that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's a pursuit. You have to have to do something about it. You must always, again, go back to the rejection message about how, you know, taking a rejection, you just you be clear, you have to be gracious if things don't work out. And that's really the first thing. You have to initiate someone. You have to make the effort to go and ask someone out. And second, it must progress towards marriage. So for you, you have to take initiative. And, and secondly, after you initiate, it has to move towards marriage. Christians do not date or court or do whatever without marriage as the goal. In other words, you have to be purposeful. Christians understand we don't live life randomly, that there is a purpose behind it, and ultimately we do all things for the glory of God, and you don't date for the sake of dating. If it's biblical friendships, we know the purpose of biblical friendships. It's that you, you engage one another to, to sharpen one another, encourage each other, all the one another's that we've been going through when Pastor Roger's preaching. If it's dating, that means that that dating it has a purpose as well, and that is that it should lead towards the marriage altar. And to me, even in engagement, this is, again, my personal preference. When I do premarital, I tell the couples, like, I don't even consider that they're engaged until they set a date and a location. Like, if, I, if they don't give me those things, I kind of stop their premarital until they figure those things out. Because to me, that's, like, when there's a timeline, that means you're working towards something. So that's, that's why I say to the premarital people, like, do you have a date, and where is it? If you don't have those, then, you know, we're just going to stop here and figure that out and then come back next time. That's your homework assignments. Because it's not real unless they have, unless they're moving towards something. Again, that's a personal preference. You know, I understand other people think differently. But, you know, you have to move towards something. It's not just simply, I'm going to date or I'm going to be engaged for an indefinite amount of time. You move towards the altar. So, the four questions around, why is it difficult? Again, I refer to what I've said earlier. How do I know if my view is not the only way? The transfer principle, church discipline principle. What are the essentials? Saved, opposite gender, not married, bonus, likes you. What do I need to do? You have to initiate at some point, and that initiation must move you towards marriage. Now, the last question, and again, what is the right way? What do we do? What do we, what, this is kind of like what we're here for. All of that just to get to this point. What is the right way? Again, there are biblical commands that you must not break. Well, we understand that. There are biblical commands that we should not break. So it's like, thou shalt not kill. That's not a preference thing. Like, I, I want to kill. No, no, you can't. That's not like a biblical, not a Christian liberty thing. This is a direct command. Those are those very black and white binary type things. But there are also other things that are just general principles and you have to figure those things out. There is in your conscience things that you don't want to violate, and that's true. Some people hold to certain culture and custom, and they think that it has to be, you, know, you have to ask my parents first. Cool, that's fine. That you don't want to force your view on them to make them violate their conscience. You must be willing to adapt. You need to know the difference between a practice and a principle. If the Bible doesn't take certain principle into specific applications or make the application a biblical principle, then neither should you. So what's the difference between a practice and a principle? Well, the principle is this. It's looking at the Bible verses 
that has a range of application. How you, how you apply those things, that is the practice. So principle are things that are just like, just think of it as like the, like the top of the pyramid. It's the thing that like goes down to everything else. If you have a certain verse and you have multiple ways to apply it in your life, and that's fine. If the Bible doesn't take certain principles and say that, if the Bible doesn't say certain application as divine principles, then you shouldn't as well. Because if you do, if you say like this, this application is what God expects. This is how you are supposed to date. This one view, whatever it may be, is the way to go. Now, I'll caution you because even the scripture warns us. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 28. It says this, and her prophets have smeared whitewashed for them, beholding worthless visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, when Yahweh has not spoken. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6 reads, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. So don't add to it. Usually what the danger is that people start adding applications and saying that, that the application or the practice itself is the divinely inspired thing, but it's not. Don't make, the practice, don't make a practice a biblical principle. Only the biblical principles, only the biblical principles are divine. The practice itself can change from person to person. So be gracious to one another. You can, honor, you can still honor the Lord by knowing the biblical principles and honoring that, but apply it differently in your life. Again, there is a difference between a principle and practice. So here's some examples. Here's a biblical principle. Live with your wives in an understanding way. We know that. That's from the scripture. Live with your wife in an understanding way. That's from scripture. So that is the principle. The principle is live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, what normal Christians would do, husbands, when you're thinking about this, is how do I apply this into my life? Now, you may apply it this way. I want to have a dinner every second Saturday of the month to have a discussion with my, my wife and figure out how she's doing. I want to understand her only on the second Saturday of the month. And that is perfectly fine because that's how you will apply that principle. But what becomes dangerous if I start looking at other husbands and say, hey, the Bible tells you to live with your wife in an understanding way. Are you doing this? Are you asking your wife out on the second Saturday of every month? Because if you're not doing this, then you're being disobedient to the Lord, and you're being ungodly. You don't love your wife. You are not a godly leader. Why? Because you don't take out your wife on the second Saturday of the month. See, you're taking the application, and you're saying that that is divine. That's not how it goes. The biblical principle is true, that's divine, but how you apply can be different from person to person. One person might say second Saturday, another person say first Wednesday or, th- or third Thursday, whatever. It can be different, that's okay. Another example, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? We know that, that's a biblical principle. You may read that and you might think, okay, so how do I apply this? And you might think, okay, I don't want to be a lover of money because the love of money leads to all kinds of evil and those pursuits might make me even deny the faith. I want to guard myself. So you think in your life, I'm going to make a resolve. I'm not going to choose a high-paying job. I'm only going to find jobs that pay minimum wage. And you do it because you think you know, you're guarding yourself. That's fine. You don't, want, you, want, you don't want to avoid any temptations. And again, is that wrong? No, because that's what your, your conscience is informing you. This is where you think how to apply Scripture. Okay, that's what's best for you. 
So you only apply for jobs that are only that pay a minimum wage. Then you begin to look around the church, and you realize, hey, that person works at this tech firm. I know that that tech firm is very wealthy. They must make a whole bunch of figures, a lot of zeros, and, and you judge them. You think, hey, hey, the Bible tells us not to be a lover of money. Why do you have this job? Are you a lover of money? I'm, war- I'm just telling you because I love you. I don't want you to be a lover of money. You need to do what I'm doing and apply for a minimum job, minimum wage job. Right? Paul tells us to learn the secret of a contentment. And First Timothy tells us that as long as I have a house over my head and clothes and food, I'm good. So that's all you need. You shouldn't have any possessions in your life. And you start dictating and judging other people. And you say that, oh, you're not obedient to the Lord. And you accuse them for being ungodly. Why? Because you don't want to be a lover of money. So therefore, everyone should have a minimum wage job. Are you understanding what I'm trying to get at here when it comes to dating? So now think of your own favorite dating method. How did you come to that conviction? You draw from biblical principles, from Proverbs, from Ephesians 5, from Proverbs 31, from you know, all the passages in Scripture that you can think about. You think about all these biblical principles, and at some point you're going to have to put it into practice. At some point you're going to have to act on this, because that's natural, right? Principles evoke practice. You may hold to a certain application by drawing from principle, which is good. That is what you're supposed to do but the application is going to be different for per, from person to person. Two people can look at the same verse, love and praise the Lord uh, when they understand these verses and, and can arrive at two completely different conclusions. When we arrive at certain pra- different practices, that should be fine. But there is a danger in thinking that that's how everyone must do it. Well, we... When you, when you try to elevate a practice over the biblical principle, well, you're essentially saying that the practice itself and the principle are equal in terms of value. And that's never the case because the practice itself is not divinely inspired. And when you do that, you become a legalist. If you apply the biblical principle yourself, that's just called discipline. But, and that's informing your conscience. You believe that's how God's working your life. You, you believe that the Holy Spirit is moving you in a certain way, in a certain lifestyle, perfectly fine. You pray, and I trust that you're walking closely with the Lord, and you think this is the best way in how to apply these scriptures into my life. That is called discipline. But you go a step too far if you start looking at all of your applications, and you force it upon other people. That's called legalism. You're essentially creating a standard that God did not. The application of certain principles are not God's standard, and that is a sin. Usually people who hold to one view of dating and then they judge other people, they tend to force, essentially force people to violate their own conscience. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. So let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed is he who does not judge himself in what he approves. You have to be willing to do things out of faith. If you can't do it, if people try to impose on you, you don't think that's the right thing, you don't think that's the biblical way of going about things, then you're essentially forcing someone to violate their conscience. And it's a very dangerous thing to make someone violate their conscience because Jesus warns against those people. He's saying that if you cause someone to stumble, it's better to have a a millstone wrapped around your neck and be thrown in the ocean. 
your job is not to be the Holy Spirit police. Whatever view you hold to, you don't shape people to the image of your practices. And I caution any of you, however, whatever approach you do, if it's, you believe that's best for you, you believe that's the Holy Spirit working in your life, totally fine. As long as it's biblically informed and not contrary to Scripture, fine. Feel free to do whatever you believe is best. But never impose it onto other people. We can all concede and agree that generally with the biblical principles and commands that are laid out, but where the, where the godly character difference, how you know, godly people can differ in terms of the application. Two Christians can look at the same verses and apply differently in their lives. And that's totally fine. We shouldn't judge people who are trying to apply Scripture differently. We shouldn't judge them or punish them, because, but the Bible doesn't do so. We can all honor God and the biblical principles and yet have different practices. And that's what's so, that's what's so you, interesting about the Scriptures. And you know, there's no other command in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. The Bible, especially in the New Testament, it speaks very highly of unity. And if you break unity for something that's just so petty about your view, then you really, your unity is not in Christ. It's not centered around Christ. It's centered around whatever, you know, Christian liberty thing that you think it is. People can disagree, yet still love one another because of the common faith. Now, again, what is the right way? I just basically answered the negative. But the right way is this, is that you look at the biblical principles, and you find, the, you extract from those principles how, you know, you would apply it to your life. Again, some of you are more comfortable in applying it differently than others. And you believe, some of you might even believe, like, hey, I do want to be married off. I want my parents to find a spouse for me. Totally fine. Just let me know. I can marry you on the spot. Some of you might think, hey, pastor, I want you to find me. I'll do it. Seriously, I will do it. If you are one, be one of those people that are on that list, I'll put you on a list, and I'll find someone, lady, that wants to do it. I'll marry you right here after this Bible study. Some of you are looking at each other, like, looking at the other side, like, yeah, totally. Yeah, let me know. I have no fear of that. That's, if that's what you believe is the right thing to do, that's fine. Bible doesn't prohibit it, and marriage is a good thing, it's a gift from the Lord. If that's what you want, let me know in private or let Kelly know, and we'll find something for you, someone for you. Others may believe that you need to take a certain amount of steps. You might, some people might think you need to fast before, so you could think critically and all of that. That's totally fine as well. The point is this, that a mature Christian knows how to think about the biblical principles and apply it in their life. It's going to look different for everyone. I don't know if you remember, but when I started the Proverbs series and even the beginning of this dating series, I said that you need to be a mature person in order to find a spouse. I stressed the need for all of us to grow in maturity, to know what the Bible has to say and, 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 and figure things out. And as a pastor, my goal is to preach to you the truth of God's word and explain it to you, and the Holy Spirit will cause you to think differently. And again, it doesn't, just because you don't do it the way that I would want you to do it, that doesn't mean you're going against Scripture. But if you're doing something that is actually contrary to Scripture, then that would concern me. A mature Christian knows how to look at the Scripture and think critically, and then think about how to practice those principles in their lives. Again, we will all apply it differently while we while still hold up and honor God's Word. So what is the right way? The answer is this, figure it out. It will look differently for each and every single one of you. And that's a good thing. Because trust me, if you think dating method is a hard decision in your life, then being married is going to be devastating for you. That's easy. Finding, how to find a spouse is a relatively easy decision. Because there are so many things in life that's going to come in your way that you're going to have to think through. And, no, and, there, and, and there's going to be circumstances that no one has ever gone through that you know of. And you might have to think through things differently. 
You have to find those biblical principles and apply it to your life. You have to don't put the application over God's word. When the application sneaks itself into, a high, into the higher plane or it seeks to be higher than God's word, then it essentially becomes a man-made religion. And the Pharisees burden people with man-made tradition over God's word. Again, this is a caution, it's a warning. And Jesus hated their teaching. It was offensive to him because they were blatantly adding to scripture. He hated the bondage that these Pharisees put on other people. Matthew chapter 15, 2 to 6. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the command of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to, my, said to his father or mother, Whatever might benefit from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. And by this, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites. Mark chapter 7, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do you disciples not walk according to traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with defiled hands? And this is about ceremonial hand-washing. Again, going down, verse 8, leaving, uh, this is again Jesus saying, leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, and he was also saying to them, you are good at setting aside the command of God in order to keep your traditions. Verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your traditions, which you have handed down, and, and you do so many things such as that. Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now you have to understand that whatever view that people have, that's fine if it's for them. Traditions, again, can be helpful, but it can also be very dangerous. There is no one way, because if you haven't noticed, again, God has brought many people to marriages without your view. God has brought many families together without your preferred method. God has multiplied people without your style of dating or courtship or whatever. So don't presume that your dating views are one size fit all. But you do have to think about it. How would I apply these biblical principles in, in my life? You can ask those in your life how they did. And this is why I even started with all of these different stories. Because each and every single one of them are different. Each and every single one of them, when they got to, the, you know, from what I can tell now, with the people that I know, or even my own, we're honoring the Lord in our marriages. How you get there, it's, you know, it's fine. Like, as long as you are honoring the Lord, as long as you're guided by the principles, you're not sinning against the Lord, and you're you know, walking in the spirits, these things are perfectly fine, however you go about it. It's going to look different for each and every single one of you, and that's the beauty of Christian liberty, right? That we can still glorify God in different routes. We can, we can testify to God's kindness in our life and how even the, the, the dumb mistakes we've made or even the right decisions, we can see how God can providentially move us to marriage. 
Dating and marriage can be complicated because we are, we are juggling a whole bunch of passages in our mind. Therefore, dating or courtship or whatever view you hold will force you to be mature in your thinking. That's actually what the overarching thing that I went with this whole Proverbs in the past, like last year when we were doing Proverbs series and even with this dating series. It's really a call to maturity. It's a call for you that you may not understand. There's no one way to figure things out, and that's okay, because it will stretch you. It will cause you to, to ask God for wisdom. It will cause you to, to know the scriptures more. It will cause you to seek wise counsel from other people. It will cause you to be humble because you may not know what is best in your life, and you want people to shepherd you through things. Those things are great. That's what the part of the church is, that we're working through things together. Again, finding a spouse can be a paradox because it seems so easy for some and yet so difficult for other people. But again, what works for one may not work for another. I mean, I remember just having these discussions with other people in the past and just how they believe it has to be this one view. And then they get frustrated and confused when, that, when their own method doesn't work, when it fails them. Like, why doesn't it work? Like, well, maybe that's not the way that's, the, you know, that maybe that's just not what's actually best for you. You're just following a mold and that doesn't fit you. You know, others, you know, they would rather delay marriage because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to go with this other structure that, you know, is unnecessary. Again, dating or marriage requires you to step up, to grow up, so that you can figure out which biblical principle best applies to you in this context. Again, the lesson, the big overarching lesson is this, that you as a Christian need to learn how to make decisions in life. And I hope that, you know, as we're going through this dating series, that you at least understand that you do, that from all the topics that we've gone through, we're just trying to draw biblical principles. And all of us are going to have different applications on every single one, even from rejection, from asking someone out, from singleness, all of these things. We're just trying to draw all of these passages so that you can be informed biblically, and, it's, and then you have to apply it to your life. Trust that the Holy Spirit is guiding you. As long as you're you know, not living in debauchery and in sin, and you're walking closely to the Lord, the Lord will give you uh, the right desires and even the right actions so that you can honor him with all that you do. So I hope that this series, as we're winding down, is really a challenge for all of us to grow up. Because dating is not for kids. You know, that's why dating, I, w- I would not recommend high schoolers date. But you guys, if it's your desire to get married, you need to step up. And I believe that if you apply the biblical principles rightly, you can honor the Lord, whether you're single or married. Whatever it may be, just apply God's word faithfully in your life. Father God, thank you for keeping us your word. And I do hope that all of us, as we're going through this series, that will force us to, to think maturely. Lord, we are not called to be child of the faith and immature in our faith. We're called to grow. We're called to grow up. We're called to put away childish things and to think rightly and think biblically and think maturely. Lord, I hope that that's us, that you cause us to, to seek out your word, to constantly live in your word, to dwell and meditate, to, to make time for your word so that we know how to live our life. Lord, we want to live this life that you've given us as a steward, and we want to honor to we give you all the glory. Lord, we want to honor you with our life. Thank you for this time. In your son's precious name, amen.